Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. From Nola Pizza in the Nola Brewing Tap Room on Chapatula Street in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Raschuti, Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and director of the award-winning Birkenrode Reports. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. Specific areas of the U.S. are associated with specific industries. In those places, people who work in those industries can make a lot of money. For example, Silicon Valley is known for tech. Software development is so lucrative for so many people there, it's driven the cost of living sky high. In Los Angeles, the TV and movie industry creates enormous wealth for actors, directors, and a large number of allied careers. In New Orleans, we're famous for music, but with literally one or two exceptions, you'll have a hard time meeting a musician or anyone else in the local music business who's getting wealthy. Why is that? Reed Wick from Senior Membership and Project Manager at the Recording Academy, the people who own the Grammys, says it's because when we were at the pinnacle of nationwide musical importance in the 1950s, nobody had the foresight to develop a music business infrastructure, and we're still paying the price for that today. How do we fix it? That's going to be my first question to Reed in just a minute. Reed Wick, welcome down to lunch. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me again. It's not like people in the music business are sitting on their hands doing nothing to change the status of musicians in New Orleans. Take, for example, MACNO, that's M-A-C-C-N-O, which stands for Music and Culture Coalition of New Orleans. Uh, MACNO was formed in 2012, spearheaded by musician Kermit Ruffin's angry response to the city's proposed crackdown on live music permits. The organization has been highly visible and a vocal advocate for musicians and other artists ever since. The executive director of MACNO is Ethan Elstead. Ethan, welcome out to lunch. Thank you, thank you for having me. Reed, even though music is a huge piece of New Orleans' multi-billion dollar tourist industry, the argument goes that a musician playing on Bourbon Street tonight gets poorly paid because nobody was thinking straight about the music business when Fats Domino and Professor Longhair were stars in the 1950s. Even if that's true, there's a difference between a situation's cause and its cure. So rather than looking back at the cause, let's look forward to a cure. You're a musician and you actively work every day in the music business. If there's anyone in New Orleans who could see a cure as clearly as the cause, it would be you. Given that you can't wave a magic wand and turn us into Nashville overnight, let's just talk about the first steps. If we're going to elevate our New Orleans musicians to the financial status befitting their importance to the city, what would you say is the one most essential thing we could do? Wow, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> well, first, let me say this. You know, we often get compared to, could New Orleans be the next Nashville? And my, my first answer is, I don't want to be the next Nashville. I want to be a better New Orleans. You know, New Orleans is so unique on so many levels. And Nashville has its own merits and everything. And there's things we can learn from Nashville, from Austin, from all these other quote unquote music cities. But they all have their similar problems, right? So what I would say is, I approach things from 
um, more of a let's look at our entire industry ecosystem and how can we elevate the entire thing because if we can elevate it all the hope is that the musicians will get paid more they'll see their value and that we can create more opportunities to earn additional income streams you know it's said that there's 45 different income streams related to music right so New Orleans is so focused on the live music scene and arguably and Ethan can back this up we probably have the most vibrant live music scene on the planet mm -hmm. between all the music venues we really are festival capital I mean we have more festivals I mean you know any New Orleans New Orleanian or South Louisiana person knows we celebrate everything shrimp seafood petroleum I mean you go down the list we find a reason to have a party a festival and it always includes music and food but the big issue for me is that the real money in the music industry is beyond the live music scene. I have a little saying that I use called, we live in this Friday night gig mentality, right? Where our musicians put all their energy into playing that gig on Frenchman Street on Friday night, and they make a hundred bucks, they get a few tips, they sell a few CDs and t-shirts, and it's a good night. Whereas, if we can put our energies into really understanding how the industry works, how do we take the intellectual property that musicians create as they create songs, that's intellectual property, how do we take that and we put it into commerce in ways that turns into what we call mailbox money, money that they'll generate for the rest of their lives. Copyright law is 70 years after the death of an author, right? So potentially, if someone can put their copyright, their intellectual property, into commerce in ways that generates ongoing income, they potentially are make an income for their family for another 70 years after they're gone. So that's, to me, where we should focus. Mm -hmm. Ethan, in old interviews with musicians talking about working here in the heyday of New Orleans uh, music in the 1950s, there are a lot of references to what they call the union. The American Federation of Musicians, Local 174, played a crucial role in protecting the rights and interests of musicians in the city during that era, ensuring they were compensated fairly for their work and helping maintain professional standards within the music industry. It seems like this is, to some extent, what your organization, MACNO, sets out to do today for musicians and other artists. I believe the local union still exists. Does its obvious decrease in effectiveness have any lessons for where we are today and for your own operation? I mean, that's a good question. I think the, the union does exist. Uh, and it's there, but you know, Louisiana is a right to work state. And so there are limits as to what they can do and the efficacy of, of the work they can do just by sort of definition of, of the, unfortunately the way politics work right now. But what we do as an organization is similar work, they're not exactly the same. A lot of the work that we do involves around, again, figuring out where the musicians can be paid fairly for their labor, uh, but also looking at things around the back end of what does it mean to be a working musician. So all the work we've done around things like parking and loading zones and all these little bits and pieces that are part of what it is to be, uh, you know, do the job of a musician, but not always thought about as part of what a musician's job is. So. For example, if you have a gig on Frenchman Street, one of the major challenges people have is finding a place to be able to park and or load and unload their gear. And if they're not able to find it, if they get a parking ticket, for example, or a loading ticket, that can eat up their entire wages for that day. So well, we push for better wages for musicians, which is unfortunately a very difficult nut to crack, which Reed can tell you. Um, we can also look at these other ways that we can support musicians, both financially, but then be able to uh, make a better income, but also be able to fulfill their craft. And 
would I be shocked at how little these musicians make when I go to see them and walk back out the door? Yes, I would say that you would. You know, in in real dollars, musicians, Larzy and Reed, you can jump in too, have, have real, real dollars of wages have not gone up often in, in two or three decades. So a musician that was gigging for, say, $75 a gig, 30 years ago may still be making $75 not adjusted for inflation today. So that's a tremendous problem because obviously cost of living has gone up even in the past few years has skyrocketed and imagine what it's done over the past 30 years. Reed, you talked about all the uh, festivals we have here, which is very, very cool. But um, one of the things that really grabs me is I bring in somebody from out of town at the airport, we pick them up and we turn on WWOZ and at the top they do that live wire. And these, whoever is in that passenger seat goes crazy. They can't believe it. It's, it's really interesting. Um, several years ago, I got asked by the American Marketing Association's local chapter to put on a panel related to like how can New Orleans do a better job of marketing their music scene. And one of the folks I invited was a friend who's no longer with the Texas Music Office, but he came in and he goes, well, you know, in Austin, we branded ourselves as the live music capital of the world, but that really was just a marketing thing. He goes, I can't believe you're bringing me to New Orleans to say, you know, to what I think is the real live music capital of the world, that there's music on a Monday night in droves more than most any other city on the planet, right? So um, it's just a, it's a, I would say it's a gift to us. It's also something that we almost take for granted, you know, and that, you know, Ethan and I both share a very similar passion about advocacy for musicians. And one of the things that I think has um, almost been a travesty all these years, going back to the 50s, like you said, is that we aren't as appreciated as, as much as we should be as what we bring to the table, right? And for so long, it had been about the culture or the art of it. But really, we are a huge economic driver. You talked earlier in the show about the impact that tourism has, the financial impact, really. But if you go around the world and ask people about New Orleans, the first words out of their mouth is going to be music. Right. You know, it's not going to be food or the architecture or everything else that New Orleans has to offer. It's going to be music. And so, but we're always the tail being wagged by the big dog when really it's right. music that's wagging that tail or <laughs> wagging, you know, the, the tourism tail, if you will. And Ethan, um, do you have a... Do you have a new catchphrase for us since live music capital of the world has taken and and uh, Nashville's got its own? Because if you say it here, it could become our name. It could. I mean, I'm a policy guy, not a not an <laughs> advertising or catchphrase guy. So, <laughs> you know, uh, ask me how to change the zoning ordinance. I'll tell you. Ask well, me to create a, a catchy. But there phrase. is something to right. that, though. It, yeah. it right. really is about marketing, right? That's one of the big issues that we've never really embraced as a city. Is, you know. I want to get away from laissez-faire, you know, I mean, yes, we are a town that the party can happen and all, but we're also a town that can do business, music business, and the musicians are the lifeblood of what makes that happen. And so uh, one thing I want to jump in there too is we do a lot of work with street musicians uh, because, you know, one of the things New Orleans is really known for is a, is a vibrant sort of public space, street-based culture, both you know, within traditions like the Black Masking Indians and Second Lines, but also street musicians, specifically, you know, in the French Quarter on Royal Street, on Frenchman Street, people expect to come and see them. When, and what people don't realize is that's often been really contested with a lot of the street musicians who are, you know, I would argue and I think fairly bring in millions and millions of dollars to the city based on the reputation and, and 
you know, videos and advertising alone, but they're not making any income off of that, right? They're still playing for tips on the street, but their image, their videos are bringing in millions of dollars of free advertising to the city. And so a lot of the work we do is saying, one, at the bare minimum, let's make sure they can get out there and do their thing and make the money they're making off of, of tips and, and however they do it and off of appearances uh, because they're bringing so much of this that people expect it. But there's often a tension then between um, between law enforcement, between businesses, between that. And so we always say, let's figure that out so we can make sure that people can actually come and see what they expect to see, which is Miss Doreen playing in front of the Rouses on Royal Street, which is the brass band on the corner on Frenchman Street, which used to be TBC at the corner of Bourbon and Canal, which when I came here in 2009, which was the, literally like the first thing I saw in New Orleans was TBC out there playing on, on Bourbon and Canal. And I remember talking to my friend saying like, this is where I'm going to be now, right? Isn't this amazing? And to me, that's that's what people get when they come here. And we want to make sure that experience exists, but also make sure the musicians that are out there and the street performers are being able to continue their craft, but also making sure they can um, be compensated in ways that they are both by tips, but also by, you know, the, the way the city is making money off them as well. Reed, I put this to a guest we had on the show last year, and I didn't get what I thought was a satisfactory answer. So I'm going to run this observation by you and, and see what you make of it. Louis Armstrong left New Orleans to make it, so did Little Wayne, Wynton Marcellus, John Baptiste, Evan Christopher, Harry Connick Jr., Devel Crawford, Nicholas Payton, No Limit Records, Cash Money Records left, Daniel Lenoir, Lenny Kravitz, Trent Reznor, and Ray Davies from the Kinks. Now they all moved their operations here and then left. You could argue that Winton had to leave here for his prestigious job as director of jazz at the Lincoln Center and John Batiste had to leave here to be the music director on the Late Show with Stephen Colbert. But that's the whole point. We're the birthplace of jazz, but we don't have a jazz institute and we don't have the infrastructure a national TV show needs to originate from here. How do we stop the best musicians and music people we produce from leaving? Well, you know, for a long time, and this probably goes back to, let's just say forever, you know, <laughs> because we didn't really have that business infrastructure, infrastructure right? And the, the different centers of the music industry, and there's three major ones in the United States, obviously Nashville, New York, and LA. So much of the industry was concentrated in those three cities that you kind of had to go in a lot of cases to get noticed. But I mean, if you're going to be honest about it, you know, African-American musicians in Louis Armstrong's time were kind of chased out of the city. So, I mean, you have to be honest about those things, right? Uh, there were greener pastures up the river. And so they, they took it and went. But what I would say is what we've seen in the last 20 years with the Internet and, you know, even with COVID most recently is that there's been a gigantic decentralization of the music industry. And we have seen, to counter that example, those examples, Terrence Blanchard moved back home. We've seen P.J. Morton move back home. I mean, I know, uh, you know, P.J. had been nominated for several Grammys when he lived in L.A., but he didn't start winning Grammys till he moved back to New Orleans and became himself, which was really an interesting study. And I'm good friends with P.J., and he's on my board, so a little disclosure there. But, you know, P.J. felt like L.A. was trying to turn him into something that that he wasn't. And when he moved back to New Orleans, he wanted to move back because he wanted to have his kids be raised in the environment that he was raised in. He wanted to be able to take them to get a shrimp po' boy and have some gumbo and feel the energy of the city that he had as a kid, right? But it wasn't until he moved back to New Orleans 
and literally three blocks away from here, went into a studio and said, I'm going to make a record for me called Gumbo. And that record got him his first Grammy. And he's now gotten four or five Grammys since he's moved back to New Orleans. And he credits it on New Orleans allows him to be him. So you don't have to be packaged. He doesn't like have a... to be packaged like the industry wants him to be packaged. And I think that's really a strong statement about New Orleans. And it just lets people be themselves. And that's the beauty of New Orleans is that if you look at the artists, we had 31 Grammy nominations from our region this, this year. Everything from Terrence Blanchard's opera won a Grammy. Tank and a Bang has got nominated for a Grammy. Zydeco artists, blues artists. You know, people don't realize, but Arcade Fire lives in New Orleans. They recorded their last record that got nominated for a Grammy here. I mean, stuff is popping here. One of the big issues is that we're terrible about tooting our own horn and telling our own story. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with Reed Wick from the Grammy organization, The Recording Academy, and Ethan Elstead from the Music and Cultural Coalition of New Orleans. Ethan, I this is something, I, kind of a personal question of mine. Sure. There are... It seems like there are two music economies, one for local people and another for tourists. Am I, am I right? I mean, I, I think yes and no. Um, and I'd sort of be interested in what Reed says. One thing that was Reed is sort of talking about all the success that's been happening. One of the work that, one of the things that we do is sort of the flip side of that is what I'm really confident because I'm not a musician, right? I'm not a performer. My background is in urban planning. It's in community development and with with a focus on cultural and cultural spaces but it's not my business or job or or should i be saying like what music is what culture is it's about creating the spaces where it can happen and one of the things that is still i think a struggle in new orleans a little bit is to make sure that these spaces where the bands like tank and the bangers or other people that are really sure of having this moment of really the sort of the new new orleans sound coming up and having this great success where are the places in New Orleans that they can continue to get together and actually have a genesis to be able to do that? So, for example, Taking the Bang has got their start at Black Star Cafe on the West Bank, which is no longer there. But if you want to take it back, you've got, you know, a band like the Radiators got their start at what, Luigi's Pizza. And I think Galactic got their start at Benny's Bar, I think. And so you need these little spaces that are not necessarily on the tourist map that allow these these bands, these cultural experiences to grow and develop. And so what our work is also saying is, let's actually make sure those spits, those spots can continue to be, um, even if they're not a big tourist draw, you know, if you want to be a little bit cynical and do, and do sort of the other argument about, that's what's going to make New Orleans money in the, in the longer space. It might take 10 years, but allowing those spaces to grow will create the stars of the future. So we need to make sure that if they're not on the map yet, that's okay, because what they produce will be on the map later. Reed, uh, <laughs> you know Austin has done so well with South by Southwest, and I always laugh because I think we're, I think we're a lot better than, than us. I always laugh when they sell those T-shirts that say "Keep Austin Weird." I was thinking you're only weird for Texas, you know. <laughs> Don't try to outweird us. So it's uh, <laughs> that's true. They, and they, their South by Southwest is kind of a all-encompassing thing. It's a lot of music, but it's also showing off all their businesses and tech and all. Is that what we need? Well. I'll tell you this, I've been to South By many times, I have friends that used to work at South By, some who live here now, and uh, what I would say is that, and not to diss what they do, but South By has basically been given up on music over the last five years. I was there this year, um, I will tell you that I was amazed at how empty 6th Street was 
It was unbelievable. In fact, South by basically canceled the second half of the second weekend, which is the music weekend, because there's so little focus on music. So I think there is a real opportunity because, you know, I truly believe that bringing festivals and conferences here as well as going to festivals and conferences is a true business development tool because we, we have a little phrase called, you know, bringing them in to make them drink the Kool-Aid because there's <laughs> something about New Orleans that you can talk about when you're in L.A. or Nashville or any other city. But when you bring them here and they experience it, like your friend who flew in and got in the cab, right? Once you experience it, you see the street musicians, you go to these venues, you get to be in these unique spaces like we're sitting in right now, people drink the Kool-Aid, they get it. Then they're like, oh my, I see. I see that there's opportunity. I see that there's great tax incentives. I see that there's cost of living differentials that make it more affordable to do business in New Orleans than in Austin or wherever else, right? But until you embark on a real intentional effort to have them in a position to drink the Kool-Aid, you almost never get there. <laughs> and by the way, you brought Billboard magazine with you here. There's probably I did. something in there you're very proud of. There is something in here that I'm very proud of. <laughs> because, uh, and I know we haven't touched on the New Orleans Music Economy Initiative yet, but one of our main goals, and one of my main goals forever, has been to get what I call the, the Chamber of Commerce community. Elected leaders, business leaders, bankers, the people who make decisions on business in New Orleans. My goal has been to get them to take our industry seriously like an industry. Like we mentioned earlier, music to me is the driver of tourism, right? And if you read The Economist, they put out a, a website every year called 50 States of Music and they do overarching 35,000 foot views of the music industry in every state. Music in, is worth upwards of $1.2 billion to the GDP of Louisiana and employs over 30,000 employees. That's musicians, that's people that run the festivals, that's every aspect of that ecosystem. And Reed, I gotta say that they might be thinking that tourism drives music, but it's the other way. 100%. And I think that, you know, my friend over at New Orleans and Company gets it, Walt Leger, who helped actually as, as state rep helped me pass some of the best incentives that we have in the country now as the CEO finally gets it and I think he's really trying to turn the, the, the tide around. Going back to Billboard what I'm most proud of is for years I've been trying to get Billboard to do a spotlight on our music industry. Billboard's done stories on our artists, on our festivals, but I wanted Billboard to finally cover our industry as a growing industry and uh, this Billboard article is a great spotlight and uh, it's short and sweet, but it tells the story. Coming, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of pitching. Ethan, I just wanted to ask you something. You said your background was in urban, uh, you know, urban planning, ur yeah. urban planning, and then uh, you know, d design and all that. What you deal with the politicians right. uh, even more than than Reed does here. Uh, for instance, you're lobbying in Baton Rouge and 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 you know in New Orleans and such. Uh, what are some of the things that are holding us back in terms of? Uh, city government and 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 permitting. There's got to be a, a ton of things. I saw yeah. I saw the thing that you had, which is that we have things on the book like for like a hundred years that like you can't wear a hat in a theater. Yeah, yeah, These yeah. things are still on there. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really good question because a lot of the laws that govern what New Orleans culture, you know, can do, were, were in some sense created. I mean, decades ago, and the one you're referencing is from 
1819 or something has been in the code since then. And, I and just that, moved here. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> uh, and, and I think, and, and that really is just a piece of, of the law that's been on the books that says it is illegal to wear a hat while the curtain is raised in a theater, basically. And it was put in place, and is you know there there's a there was a longer version in 1819 which literally talked about where enslaved people could be, where women could be in a theater, um, and a lot of that has been taken out. But that little piece of it has remained within the code for over 200 years. And <laughs> some of our work is just thinking like, what other pieces of the code have been in there for 100 years, for 50 years, that were actually created in a way to disenfranchise people, to tamp down on culture, and what impact have they had on culture, and often particularly black culture in New Orleans, and how do we unravel that, change those to make sure that we're actually having legis a legislation that is conducive to creating that culture. Again, a lot of it is, is remnants that have been there, but they've impacted the way. And, and a real quick example, when New Orleans did a new zoning ordinance in 1970, they, they uh, passed a piece of it that made it uh, illegal for neighborhood bars to have live music in them, bars within residential areas, which was then sort of doubled down on in 1977. That's largely been in the code in, in one way or another since then. And what that means is most of the neighborhood spots that you have, that you might think of, just let's say a Vaughn's and a BJ's, for example, that people may know, they're in residential areas and they're what's called non-conforming uses, which means if they stop having live entertainment for more than six months, they'll lose that use to be able to have live entertainment and lose it forever. And one by one, that's meant that a lot of the neighborhood spots that have been the real, what I talked about, the incubators of culture, have disappeared. And there is not necessarily a replacement for that. So what we think is like, well, how do we, one, make sure that stops, and then two, reverse it. Let's think about where new neighborhood spots could be, you know, as people get pushed out, maybe in Gentilly or in the East, maybe we can create these new incubator spots that can allow us to continue because we can't, you know, turn back the clock 30 years to necessarily recreate all that, but we can create new spaces as the culture moves forward. So that's what the urban sort of planning and zoning aspect really works. Yeah, I'd like to pick up on that thread a little bit too, and this may have happened before Ethan moved to New Orleans, but, um, and I've been real involved with advocacy in state, more state level than local, as, as Ethan does a lot of local stuff. Yeah, we're um, reverse, right? Yeah, kind of. But, um, you know, for 100 years plus, it was illegal to play and it still might be illegal to play music in New Orleans. You have to go get a special mayoral permit to actually play music in New Orleans. And, it, and I know it stems from public gatherings and things like that that go probably back to the mid-1800s. Mm -hmm. But they used to have an amusement tax where if a venue had live music, they had to pay an extra 5% tax. And it's like, wait a minute, that's the most insane thing I've ever heard of. You're going to tax a bar owner or a club owner who's hiring five or ten musicians when it should be the opposite. You should be incentivizing right. that club owner to hire ten musicians, and maybe they could afford to pay them a little better. Those are the kind of overarching public policy things I'd love to see reversed. So now, now we're going to get this back and forth, because now that makes me think, you know, our motto has always been music is not a crime. And that stems from the fact that... Um, you know, violating a noise ordinance is in fact a misdemeanor, right? It is a criminal offense. There's still a law on the books, though it's been deemed unconstitutional, it's still on the books that it's actually illegal to play a musical instrument in the public right away after 8 p.m. So that's been a, a long-standing issue back and forth where musicians have actually been arrested. That's been a spark that led to arrest for musicians because they were violating this music curfew that we know was unconstitutional but remains on the books. So they're not enforcing it generally, except occasionally when they do, in for, for whatever reason, and that becomes an issue. So a lot of our work is also like, let's think about that again. Let's decriminalize this. 
because nobody should go to jail in New Orleans for playing music, right? Point blank, that's correct. Um, so how do you make sure that that doesn't happen? But then also, you know, with things like zoning, we had a big fight uh, around legalizing outdoor live entertainment in businesses over the past few years. We ultimately were successful, but there was just this weird piece of the zoning code that said you cannot have live entertainment, which is, you know, live music, it's it's plays, it's stand-up comedy, it's magic shows, all that is live entertainment. You couldn't have it outdoors at a business because there was a piece of the code that said live entertainment can only take place when doors and windows were closed. And someone at the city interpreted that to say you could not have it outdoors because there were no doors and windows outdoors to close, <laughs> therefore you could not have live entertainment. And it took us three years, and literally it happened because of a global pandemic, we were able to finally say, isn't this pretty ridiculous? Shouldn't we be able to have some live music outdoors? And, and ultimately we were successful, and now you've got places like the Broadside and others that are able to continue to function. Um, but those are the kind of things that people don't realize become the the impediments that Greed is talking about and the disincentives for music when we should be doing the opposite. And Ethan, you brought up something that, you know, we've had a thousand guests on the show and in all unrelated industries, it's racism mm -hmm. that it created so many of the problems we that's had. That's correct. I mean, that's, uh, that's behind it. And uh, Reed, at Loyola, you started the uh, actual business of music program and I got a, the whole city owes you something well, for that. Well, I can't take credit for that. Totally. I mean, I was part of a team of people. Um, if you're going to give anybody credit, I would give Father Carter, former president of Loyola, credit. Um, Father Carter had the foresight to see that, I mean, he's always was a music fan, and I uh, got to know Father Jim pretty well over the years, but he really saw the foresight of, you know, Loyola had this amazing music school, Nin opened in 1932. Actually, they, they merged with the New Orleans Academy of Music in 1932, and one of the oldest music education programs, one of the oldest music therapy programs, one of the very first jazz education programs in the country. But as we were coming into the 90s, the music industry was really something that only five or six universities in the whole country had any sort of degree in. And so it was kind of a, 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 a guilt play to the Hilton Foundation because you know, when you had all these casinos coming online, and at the time, Hilton had one down at the riverfront. Father Carter, as all deals happen on the golf course, was playing golf <laughs> with Baron Hilton, Conrad Hilton's son, who ran the Hilton, found the Hilton Hotel organization. And not Paris Hilton. As well, well, no. Paris's grandfather, actually, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and Father Carter said, hey, you know, you're, uh, basically, you're going to be taking a lot of our citizens' money in the casino you need to give back some way and why don't you give back by helping us help our musicians and he got a million dollars out of Baron Hilton that helped start the music industry program. A lot of people think you know music business is like an oxymoron but it's not it's uh... Uh, well you know I tell everybody I had this conversation yesterday I have it every day every single musician yes you're an artist you create art but if you're gonna make a living as an artist you have to interface with the market so you are an entrepreneur you're a small business. And the more you think like that, the more successful you're going to be. That's just the bottom line. You know, I make the analogy that a lot of folks can and, uh, understand here in Louisiana. You know, one of my best friends growing up were born on the same day. He's a fishing captain, right? You know, he just loves being out on the boat fishing. But if he's going to make a living at it, he has to market. He has to develop his product. He has to take care of his equipment, you know. 
a shrimp guy, the same thing. If you're going to go catch shrimp for a living, that's what you grew up doing. If you're going to make money at it, you got to interface with the market. And it's the exact same thing. It's just a different, it's intellectual property. And the, harder thing, the hardest thing about it is that most people can't fathom what that is. I can't hold intellectual property in my hand. It's a, it's a, it's a non-physical thing. It can manifest itself in a lot of ways, CDs, vinyls, cassette, whatever, but intellectual property itself is just so hard for people to grasp, which I think is one of the reasons why most business people can't wrap their head around it. They can wrap their head around making a piece of, you know, a glass cup. They know what the costs are. They understand the market. They understand what, how to manufacture it. Intellectual property is so different. And I think that's a challenge with, with live performance too, is people don't understand the value and how, what goes into creating a live performance is not just the time you were at the venue performing, it's rehearsal, it's getting there, it's all those things. And Reed, you're a, you're a musician, right? I did so a you know three well. hour rehearsal last night, <laughs> right. long in a hot warehouse. But we we look we worked up a whole bunch of songs and it's going to pay off on Friday night. Right. And but all the like, in theory, like all the page should also is also paying for that time. And when you're being paid, you know, seventy five dollars for three hours, seventy five dollars plus tips, which obviously is can itself be problematic, for three hours of performance. But also how many hours of rehearsal plus travel plus any of the back end work you do to get people together. Like, it's it compounds itself. So if you think about someone's hourly wages that's getting paid seventy five dollars for that gig three hours plus all that other time, you're at less than minimum wage, right? And that's a real issue. Well, and beyond that, I mean, most musicians put in their quote-unquote 10,000 hours, you know? Right. I have a degree. Right. You know, it took me 20 years to pay that off, right? <laughs> For folks that's who a have a degree in music. Degree. But it's true, though. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to go get a degree in music, you know, most people are going to be paying for that for a long time. Unfortunately, or fortunately, a lot of great musicians get scholarships. So, or think uh, of all the musicians got a that, small have, scholarship. that New Orleans have, have been playing, you know, on the street, on the street, right? Playing in Jackson Square, playing in Royal Street, as a way to actually is, is sort of the alternative to that, right? Yeah. You're getting a degree as a brass band by going up that system that's long been here, but that's that's just as valuable it is, and that all that time actually created that experience that you're going to get as a consumer seeing that gig, you know, all those hours, all those years lead up to that. We all know too well that consensus alone doesn't bring about change. We all agree, for example, there should be equal pay for equal work, but women are still paid less than men. And you won't find a single person in New Orleans who disagrees with the notion that musicians should be paid at a level commensurate with their importance as some of our most valued citizens. And yet, year after year, decade after decade, we're still having the same conversation about musicians' struggles to make a decent living here. At some point, this has to change. When it does, it's going to be because of the tireless efforts of people like you, Reed and Ethan. Thank you both for everything you're doing for the city of New Orleans, and thank you both for taking the time to join me today on Out to Lunch. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having us. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Reed Wick, musician and senior membership and project manager at the Recording Academy, and Ethan Elstead, executive director of the Music and Culture Coalition of New Orleans. We edited this show to fit into the time slot here on WWNO. You can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Reed and Ethan's work in the music and arts industries by listening to the Out to Lunch podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch podcast on your podcast app and on our website, itsneworleans.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on itsneworleans.com and on our Out to Lunch social media. These photos were taken today by Jill LaFleur, 
You can find more of Jill's photos at LaFleurPhoto.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. And our researcher is Maggie Mendel. Today's show was engineered by Blake Longlinay. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the lunch table for more business. New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch was recorded live over lunch at the NOLA Brewing Tap Room, 3001 Chapatula Street, open seven days a week. NOLA Brewing Tap Room has a wide variety of craft beers and authentic hand-tossed New York-style city pizza by NOLA Pizza. More information is at nolabrewing.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Basics Swim and Gym and Basics Underneath Fine Lingerie. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. If you'd like to be part of Out to Lunch, to learn how your business or organization can become an Out to Lunch program partner, email info at inobroadcasting.com. 